Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. Here we are on the 19th of April, 2020, and we're still under quarantine kind of conditions. We're um, staying at home as much as we possibly can and keeping ourselves safe. But more than that, I think the main reason for us to stay at home is that we don't happen to infect anyone else. And so it's a difficult thing, the social distance. And so, at least for me, for extroverts, it's not the easiest thing in the world. So for introverts, maybe you social distance anyway, so it's not a problem for you. But here we are with a week after Easter. And so our lessons today are Psalm 118, verses 19 to 24, Genesis 8, 6 to 16, and then 9, chapter 9, verses 8 to 16. The epistle is 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, and the gospel lesson is John 20, verses 19 to 31. I'm going to read the collect, the prayer for the day for you today. We're going to start there. Almighty and everlasting God, who in the Paschal mystery has established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. The reason I share that is because this is one of the things that I think can sometimes be a barrier within Anglicanism uh, for the way that we invite others into our worship and invite them in to, to join us in that worship. So when we say who in the Paschal mystery has to establish the new covenant of reconciliation, I don't know what percentage of Americans, much less even the percentage of American Christians, know what the Paschal mystery is. So sometimes language can become a barrier. It just means Easter. <laughs> it means Pascha, the, the Lamb of God. So the Passover mystery of Easter. So we have been established through faith and reborn, that says, into the fellowship of Christ's body. And so what we're praying for there is, is that, that we would, our lives would, would have some connection with what we profess to believe. I had somebody this week that, that sent me a quote that I really liked, and that is, is that um, our lives should be lived such that if we were accused of being Christian, there would be enough evidence to convict us. I like that. I like that a lot. It, it Right now, I think, is an especially interesting time for this, and our lessons actually touch on all of those things. I think Christians, we should, we should be careful. We should do the things that the state has asked us to do, because again and again, from the Gospels on forward through um, Paul's writings, the, the authority of the state over our lives matters in places where it doesn't impinge upon our faith in him. And so if they told me I can't worship him, then I reject that authority as coming not from God. But other than that, we're told through the epistles that all authority comes from God. And so we're supposed to uh, obey the authority of the state. And so we do that. But, but then there should even be a peculiar way that we obey the authority of the state. We should, I think, obey the authority of the state, not in fear, but in obedience. And so that's what we did. 
I think the title, if I, if I ever gave a title to something today, I think what I would title this might lead you to believe that, that, that I'm trying to encourage you to do something else. And so, But I'm not. The title I would give to this is essentially come out, come out wherever you are. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out in public. I'm not encouraging you to risk your health or anybody else's. That's not the point of what I'm saying. It, it's come out, come out wherever you are. Come out of hiding, Christian. Come out of fear, Christian. Come out of whatever it is that has you locked up and living in any kind of fear or doubt. It's come out and come into faith. It's come out and, and come out into the open with that faith. Let others see the light that's within you, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what I mean by that. And, and let's now look quickly at how I think that happened. So that Genesis reading is after the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent forth a raven. So the, the rain had ceased. So Noah wants to know, is it safe to come out? And so he sends forth the raven. and the raven didn't come back. And it says it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. So then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. There's Genesis creation language in the waters from the face of the ground. We're, we're having recreation. And remember in that prayer, we talked about they've been reborn. And so there's this new beginning in Genesis, it's the recreation. Noah has the, the raw materials. God didn't throw everything away. He kept some of everything that moved in order to repopulate the earth. But the waters were over the face of the earth. And so just like in beginning, we have to wait for the waters to recede so that life can begin again the way it was before the flood waters covered the earth. And so the dove goes out the first time and finds no place, it says, to set her foot. And so she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. And, and there's this tender thing that the dove comes and returns. And, and it tells us that Noah put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he set forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. So the waters have gone down far enough now that there's an olive leaf that's possible to pluck from a tree. And then he waits another seven days and he sends forth the dove again. And this time she did not return to him anymore. So the waters were dried off from the earth. The dove could now begin its normal life, but it's a new normal because the covenant is going to make clear that there's a new normal that's going to be established. Prior to that, vegetarianism was the rule of the day. After that, now there's a difference in that man can eat of certain of the animals, the clean animals, but there's also another difference. There's an enmity between us in the animal kingdom, with the exception of domesticated animals. And so there's a different relationship within creation. There's going to be some social distancing with animals that wasn't true before that. 
And so the waters are dried off the face of the earth, and Noah removes the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. Here's something to see. This happened in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month. The waters were dried from the face of the earth, and Noah removed the covering and looked and saw. Then the next sentence says, In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So we knew the face of the ground was dry. Now we know that the earth is dried out. And God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son and your son's wives with you. So 55 days after Noah sees that the face of the ground is dry, and he remained in the ark until the earth was completely dry. The earth had dried out, it says. And then God has to tell him, get off the ark, Noah. Go on, all of you, get off the ark. And so they come off the ark, and after that, the reason we skipped some space in there, and then we come to a place where God says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall be a flood to destroy the earth. And the sign that God had a covenant not to destroy the earth with flood, is the rainbow. And he says, I make this covenant between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. He sets his bow in the cloud, and the word there is not rainbow. It's bow like battle bow. So in essence, what God has said is, is that I'm not going to be at war with humanity again in such a way that I bring floodwaters all over the earth. That's a one-time event. It will never happen again. I will remember that I have a covenant with all of you. It's a very specific covenant. It's a very limited covenant. Did you hear the limitation on that? I won't flood the earth again to destroy everything. That's the covenant. It's not a covenant of life. It's a covenant that's established to say we're no longer going to be at war in such a way that I'm going to destroy all the earth. Well, that's a good thing. It's, it, it, you need that in order to move into the new normal. You need to know every time it rains, it will stop before floodwaters cover the entire earth. That, that's a good thing to know. It, it, it allows you to make certain decisions about your life, the economic part of your life and other parts of your life. You don't have to live in fear every time the sky gets cloudy and it rains. But it's not a covenant for life. It's not a covenant of eternal life, like the covenant we live with. Those covenants await something further and something far more specific. So that next covenant is going to be with Abraham. And Abraham, the covenant is, I'm going to give this land to you, and I'm going to give you progeny, I'm going to give you favor, and I'm going to give you blessing through all future generations, like this one is for all future generations. It's, I'm not going to destroy you with a flood. And so the relationship between God and man is, I'm not going to destroy you with a flood. We need more than that. We need a a, a further covenant than that. And so the Jewish people receive that next covenant. And then God continues to make covenants. He makes covenants with David that you'll always have a king on the throne. 
And then we come to Jesus. And we come to a covenant sealed in his blood. Sealed in the blood of his willing sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. And that covenant is a covenant for eternal life and for salvation. It's, it's a covenant that means more than any covenant anybody could ever have actually imagined. But he's a God of life and he's a God of covenant and he's a God of love. And therefore, he establishes this covenant in the blood of his son. And so Noah in that covenant knows that he doesn't have to fear every time it rains. So he can go out, he can plant crops, he can begin to rebuild life in a new way because everything is different. It's a new creation. Everything has been destroyed except for the animals that are on the ark with Noah and the plants that were in the ground and, and those are going to come back. But the job Noah has still is the same, which is to populate the earth and to till the ground and uh, handle his domesticated animals. But like I said, there's a different relationship with creation after that. There's a fear now in the relationship between men and the other living creatures. So, so there's certain things that allows Noah to get back to a new normal. But it's a new normal. It's not the same. So we see those covenants moving forward. God will do things and, and he will bring judgment upon his people. They'll be kicked out of the land from time to time. And because they failed to keep their part of the covenant. Because it's not just having faith. The faith has something more than just simple assent, verbal and mental assent. God told them, don't um, work on the Sabbath. None. Take a Sabbath year every seventh year where you do no work. Take a Jubilee year every 50 years. And so what that's meant to say is that my faith will show itself forward in the fact that I, I forego a Sabbath. I mean, I forego working on the Sabbath like Chick-fil-A, for instance, which doesn't open on Sundays. So the point for the Jewish people was they were always to take a Sabbath day. It made them different from the rest of the world. There was a day set apart for worship. There was a day set apart for remembering and contemplation of God. The rest of the world didn't observe that Sabbath day like that. And so that became a part of the world that's different. But it's a statement of faith that I won't work one day out of the week. I will trust God that even if I don't, he will prosper me. And then the bigger thing was the Sabbath year. And the point was to give the land its rest, which is good agricultural principle, but the bigger issue is it's a statement of faith that says, even if I don't work an entire year, don't till the ground, only eat what comes up on its own and whatever I've stored away, then that faith will say something to the world that makes us different. It says we can trust our God. And that was to be a witness to the world, that they were a different kind of people. They lived by faith. And so when they're driven out of the land, Jeremiah says that you're going to be out of the land for 70 years so that if the land can have the rest, you wouldn't give it by not keeping the Sabbaths. And so they're going to be gone 70 years. That means for almost 500 years, they had not practiced that Sabbath year. And it diminishes the world's understanding of God because our faith 
says something about him. It reflects what we believe the way we live. And so it's important to make sure those two things fit with one another. And so God made these covenants. And now here, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, surely things are changed and, and the disciples are changed, right? But here's what we read beginning in John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, which is now a week or this, I mean, the day of the resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It's interesting. We think of Jesus being sort of a vaporous ghost most of the time. But C.S. Lewis actually said, nope, you got it wrong. The resurrected Christ is more substantial than anything on this earth. And so he didn't pass through the wall. It passed through him because it was less substantial than he is. And at a uh, quantum level, we would agree with that. Because at a quantum level, literally the desk that I'm sitting in front of doesn't exist in the way that my senses perceive it to exist. There are spaces that make it something other than a completely solid surface at a quantum level. So Jesus comes in, says, peace be with you. One thing they needed because they were there for fear of the Jews. They needed peace. And so Jesus comes in and says, shalom. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then they were glad when they saw the Lord. And he said to him again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. Even so I'm sending you. And then he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then we get this. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. said this before, they weren't particularly credulous people. They didn't believe easily because they were simpletons, because they didn't know biology and chemistry and physics. That was not the problem. No. Uh-uh. I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. He had 10 friends with whom he had spent three years, and he knew these men. He knew them well. He had spent all his life with them over the last three years. They all say, we've seen the Lord. And he said, uh, nope, not believing that. Nope, got to see it, got to touch it. And everybody says, well, will they call him Doubting Thomas? Well, the reality is, what did Jesus do for the disciples? He showed them his hands and he showed them his side. Thomas is not asking for anything different, except for he wants to touch it because he wants to be able to prove to himself. He's asking for a little higher level of proof. But, but Jesus gave them evidence by allowing them to see it. So then eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And then it says, still, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he invites Thomas to go up and do exactly what Thomas said he needed to do in order to believe. But Thomas's answer was, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So Thomas gets the same revelation that everybody else does. Jesus is not blasting Thomas for not seeing without believing. But what he is saying is, this is a one-off. But so really blessed 
are those people who, well, like us, 2,000 plus years later, who have not seen and yet believed. But the other side of it is, yes, the witness of the Holy Spirit tells us these things are true, but we can see things as well. We can see it in the lives of Christians. We can see it in the change in the life of Christians, but we can also see it in the lives of Christians and their attitudes. Do we have the same fears the world does? Do we have the same doubts the world does? Do we have the same desires that control our lives that the world does? And sometimes in our theology, we betray that. We betray what we really want. We want prosperity. We want this. We want that. Paul says bizarre things to American modern Christians when he says that he wants to be like Jesus in his sufferings. And he he takes honor in his sufferings. There are places that today, that if, if Paul said things like that in some places today in the Christian world, they would tell him that he just doesn't have enough faith and he misunderstands because in Christ Jesus, all your troubles are supposed to go away. You just got to believe and affirm good things will come into your life, and they will. Well, there's more to it than that, frankly. There's suffering in the Christian life. In fact, Jesus didn't promise prosperity at all. He promised suffering, that we would suffer as he did, that we would be rejected by the world. And the less we're rejected by the world, the less Christian we really are. We need to have a hope that's different. We need to have less fear of certain things. We have need to reorient our lives away from prosperity, frankly. We need to reorient our lives around the stuff of the Sermon on the Mount. We need to do what Jesus did and what we needed Jesus to do, which was to identify with the suffering in the world. But we can build our own enclaves. We can build gated neighborhoods, and we can go in places where we'll never actually see the suffering of the world. We can only see it vicariously on television when somebody makes an appeal for money and we're moved because we see suffering for the first time in a long, long time. We've removed the ability of our children to see suffering in other people because we've, we've moved ourselves away from the rest of the world and we've created our own alternative world that looks a lot like the other world. But, well, we don't have to associate or deal with those problematic things in the world. But the world needs us to be salt and light, just like we needed Jesus to come down from heaven and become like us on a mission to save us. Sometimes I worry that we're still like the disciples. We lock the doors because we're afraid of the world. We shouldn't be afraid of the world. They should be afraid of us. Because we come proclaiming a different kingdom. We pro come proclaiming a different way of thinking, a different way of living. We come to say, this is an illusion. The real and the substantial and the lasting is yet to come. And it's greater than anything you could possibly know today. It's an odd message. It's a difficult message because this is all we know. So at this point, the disciples even still are living in fear. And so they're still behind locked doors, even a week later when, when Jesus comes, when Thomas is there. But that changed. After the day of Pentecost, they stopped living in fear. God set them free from that. He poured out his Holy Spirit on them, and they stopped living in fear to the extent that Peter could even 
tell the high priest and the Sanhedrin that they couldn't stop him from doing anything. He'd been set free from fear of those people. He had feared the servant girl before he feared the Jews here. But he stopped living in fear because he knew this life is not the end of all things, that he was not made to live this way, to live in fear and doubt and uncertainty. No, he was meant to rise above this and live for that next world where there is no fear, there is no doubt, there is no uncertainty. There's nothing to fear. And so the fear of God replaced the fear of man and Peter became a different person. And he willingly went to his own death on a cross. Defiant to the end for truth's sake, just like Paul was constantly defiant in all of his trials. Always proclaimed Jesus to the extent that even one time, one of his interlocutors said to him, Paul, do you think that you're going to be so quick to convict me of this truth that you're proclaiming here? Do you think you're going to make me a Christian? And Paul says, I would hope so. That should be our hope. We should have no fear. We should live as those who have been redeemed and those who have received the Holy Spirit of God, those who have nothing to fear because we have nothing to lose. We've lost everything for the sake of the gospel, for the hope of eternal reward. And therefore, whatever we might lose in this life is literally immaterial. You're going to lose it anyway. So the, the thing is, is that come out, come out wherever you are. Stop living in fear. Since Jesus has been raised from the dead, there's nothing to fear. Your eternal life has been proven to you in the resurrection of Jesus. So Christians, come out, come out wherever you are. Make yourselves available to your neighbors. And who is your neighbor? Well, when Jesus was asked that question, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he never identified the person that the Samaritan did good to. So your neighbor is anybody who needs you to do good to them. So make yourself available to your neighbors in this time. What can you do for other people in this time? What does that person need you to do? Live with open hands and open hearts. Live not with fear, but in joy and in hope, but a hope that is secure because Jesus is risen from the dead. Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding this 19th day of April in the year 2020. Make this a week when you decide that I'm not going to live in fear anymore. I'm going to understand the situation that I live in, and then I'm going to say, how would God use me in this situation? How he would do that. Come out, come out, wherever you are.